Right, we started a conversation last Sunday called Lessons from the Garden. Lessons from the Garden. And what we're doing is we're looking back at the very first story or very first collection of stories that we have in the Bible, the Old Testament, the book of Genesis. And, and guys, these are some of the most ancient stories in human history. And it's amazing how much we learn by looking back at the beginning. It's incredible, really, how much we can learn about who God is, who we are, the kind of relationship that, that God desires to have with us and maybe some of the pitfalls that can come between us and God. Not as so much as God having something that's between him and us, but it's more how we respond to things that happen and, and create distance between ourselves and God. We learn a lot about God, about us, about this whole relationship by looking at the beginning. And so we started last week and we explored this, this concept of the tree of life. And if you weren't here for that, it's one of the most foundational teachings for us as a church. We are what we call a, a tree of life church. And if you're like, what in the world does that mean? I, I highly encourage you to go back, listen to last week's message, watch it online, really interesting stuff. But today I just wanna jump back in. And the cool thing about this story, by the way, if you're new to church is you probably know this story. Even if you've never opened a Bible, you've never read it directly from the source, you, you know the gist of the story. There's these two people, Adam and Eve, they're in a garden. And then there's a serpent and there's forbidden fruit and they're tricked and they eat the fruit and everything goes awry. You know this story, but we're gonna, we're gonna examine it from some really unique angles. And so that said, I'm gonna read from Genesis chapter two, verses 15 through 18. It says, the Lord God placed the man in the garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper who is just right for him. And he, he creates woman. I find it interesting that the moment God gives man some type of instruction, he immediately goes, he's gonna need help. Uh, this isn't gonna go well. It's like, he was, it's like he was looking at Adam and Adam's nodding his head and God's like, you don't understand what I'm, all right, I, hold on, let me figure this out. I know, I'll create women. You know, because let's be honest, men without women, where would we be? Like, where would we be? You know, amen. I have more money, but that's, I'm just joking. I'm just joking. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I'd, I'd have so much less of everything. Megan, I would have less of everything that is good if you weren't in my life. So here we go. Let's keep going before I dig a deeper hole. Genesis 3.1. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? And then they have this conversation. And actually we're gonna explore that conversation in depth, do kind of a zoom in next week on that. So I don't wanna get into all the, the nuts and bolts of their conversation and how it goes. But, but again, you know the gist of the story, this serpent, which is always associated with our enemy, right? With, with Satan, with the devil, this serpent, he convinces Eve, it says she's convinced. This is Genesis 3, six through seven. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it and then she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. And at that moment, their eyes were open and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. Now, last week we asked kind of a basic question early on. Why in the world did God put that tree there in the first place? Why would God create this, this garden, this paradise. And, and you've got the tree of life, which he's like, eat freely from that. And it's, it's a representation of, 
of Jesus, really, and, and the life that we can have with God when we just come to him for everything we need. But why would God put this other tree, this tree he calls the knowledge of good and evil, and he's like, oh, if you eat that, bad things will happen. Why even put it there? And we talked briefly last week about the concept that maybe God values freedom. Maybe God desires such a real relationship with us that, that he knew the only way to have real relationship is for us to have a choice. So he gives us a choice. And it's interesting because very often we get angry at God. And I mean, collectively as people, we get angry at God because bad things happen. And sometimes we might even ask, God, if you're real, why is there suffering in the world? That's a pretty common question. It's a good question to ask, by the way. It's not an easy question to answer, but, but I will say that if you look at the majority of suffering that's happening in the world, almost all of it is happening as the direct result of someone's choices. There is suffering that happens sort of just naturally, right? Maybe like a natural disaster that happens or something like that. But the vast majority of human suffering is done at the hands of another person, the decisions that they make. And so then we can ask the question, okay, if I want to eliminate suffering, then Lord, just eliminate all of our choices. Take all of our choices away. And everyone's like, oh, hold on, hold on, wait. No, 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 I like my choices. It's tough, right? Like we want to have freedom. We want to have the ability to choose, to have free will, but at the same time, we want nothing bad to happen. And maybe that just doesn't work. God seems to value freedom. Maybe that's why he put that tree there. But, but what we just read begs another question. It's another one of those, hey God, I don't mean to like tell you what to do, but if we're all honest, if we had God's power for a day, how many of us think I would make some things better? Like, come on, like if you had God's power for one day, how many of you, just show of hands, be honest, would be like, I think I can improve some things, right? Some of you are, are not being honest. We all do. <laughs> if you had God's power for one day, you'd just be like, it's perfect the way it is. God is just, I'm just, no, you'd be like, finally, <laughs> finally, this is getting done. Because there is something deep down inside of all of us that sort of believes that, you know, we could maybe do a little better. At least I do. So it's not that we wanna look at God and say, hey God, I think you're doing it wrong, but sometimes we have those thoughts. And I look at this story and, and there's the, why is there a tree there? But then maybe even more specifically, hey, hey God, why is there a serpent in your garden? Like, can, can we just stop for a second and say, maybe that's a bad idea? A few years ago, we lived in our, our first home, first house Megan and I ever lived in. We got that house when we became pregnant with our first child. And it was a tiny little house and it had a tiny, tiny backyard. But our backyard uh, had, a, had a fence and then that backed up to this sort of wild area and there was a creek. And one day I opened the sliding glass door to step into our backyard and thank God, like for some reason I looked down and right before my foot hits the ground, there, there is a copperhead snake directly underneath my foot. Like just, and I knew exactly what kind of snake it was. I grew up in Southern Missouri. They're very common there. I'm like, whoa, okay. So I come back in and I'm like, I, I let my son play out there all the time, right? I can't have that. I can't, I can't have a, a snake in the backyard. Like that part of me is a man that's like, this is my tiny territory and I will defend it, you know, came up. And so I tried to kill the snake and I was unsuccessful and the snake slid into our neighbor's yard. And it was one of those neighbors that I've, you've never spoken to before. You have those neighbors? Anyone have those neighbors? Like I have a neighbor, never met them. All right, I'm a terrible neighbor then. So it was one of those. And so I go, I knock on the neighbor's door, neighbor opens up and she looks at me like, she knows who I am, but we've never spoken. And she's like, yes. I said, hey, I just wanna let you know, 
sorry, but there was a copperhead snake in my backyard. I tried to kill it, unsuccessful, and it slid into yours. And she goes, oh, I get those back there all the time. It's fine. And I was like, who are, who are you? Like, <laughs> what? So that happens. And then like two weeks later, we had this little mat in the, in the backyard and I lift it up and there's two snakes under the mat. And I'm like, what is going on? I live in this like snake place. So, so I, I'm like, I, I gotta figure out how to snake proof the yard. And I went to Home Depot and I got this like, like chicken wire stuff that was really, really like, I'm like, only a tiny, tiny snake could get through this, right? I was maybe okay with that, but not really. So I got as small of, of chicken wire as I could find and I lined the back fence, the gap between the fence and the ground with it. I'm like, I have, no snake is getting in. But then the thought occurred to me, what if one is already in the yard? <laughs> I've just created a yard that it can't leave. And I mean, it, it, that messed with me for, I'm like, I may have trapped, I'm, that's it, we're moving, you know? <laughs> and we did, but not for that reason. But just the idea that there was a snake in the yard that my, my children play in, I couldn't handle that as a dad. So I, I look at this story, and again, it's not like, hey God, I, I wanna tell you how to do things. And I don't know about that tree that you put there, like maybe that wasn't a good idea, but, but that's fine, take your tree. Let's talk about the serpent. Why is there a serpent in your garden? It doesn't seem very safe. And turns out it, it wasn't safe. We frequently refer to the Garden of Eden as paradise. That's the word that we use. That's actually a very ancient word. The word paradise has existed for thousands of years and uh, it means a walled garden. That's what the word paradise actually literally means. So it doesn't just have the idea of a beautiful place. It also has the idea of a safe place, a protected place. There's a wall. So why on earth would would God allow a serpent in paradise? Because it just doesn't seem very safe. And I think that maybe we ought to consider the idea that there are things God values more than safety. There's been this, this development in the last seven, eight years, um, you may have heard of this, called uh, safe spaces. And it's been something that's become very common on college campuses. It's actually gotten a lot of, of attention. And, and it's one of those topics that people will have very different opinions on and you can go either way and that, that's fine. But the basic idea of it, if, if you haven't heard of this, is that there are, are a lot of, of students who sort of demand, it's not everybody, it's just a, a enough and a loud enough group that demand that you know, the campus should be a safe space, meaning it should be a place where, where you can be guaranteed that you won't be perhaps offended or uh, encounter maybe ideas that really, really anger and upset you, you know, that are, are extremely different than your own. And, and so colleges have actually done a lot of work. And this is something you can go research if you're unfamiliar. They've done a lot of work to create what they call safe spaces. These are like a place where you're guaranteed to not be offended or upset. Turns out that's really hard to do, right? Because man, if there's one thing as people we are amazing at, it is getting offended. How many of you have a gift for getting offended? Come on, like raise your hand. Like I can get offended so well. Some of you, I'm good at it. You know, it's like if you ever hear someone say the phrase like never in my life have I been treated. It's like, come on, never in your life have you been like, come on. Like we're good at getting offended. So the safe space thing is hard. And what that's led to really practically, it's been like people being banned from speaking on campuses, commencement speakers who have accomplished really great and amazing things, being told, actually, 
we're canceling your speaking engagement because a lot of students are upset about that. It's led to uh, this idea of, of this thing called trigger warnings, which is that the idea that like professors should have to give warnings if there's any content in the class that might be offensive, you have to warn that you might get triggered if you come to that. And then that's even led to the, the banning of certain words and phrases. Like this is a real thing. There's a college in Massachusetts that banned the, the phrase, that's crazy or that's insane. Like if you had a test, like how was it? It was insane. Can't say that because there are people who are actually insane and they might get offended. So in this scenario, it's like I'm talking to an insane person about the test I took and they're like, how was your test? And I was like, it was insane. And they're like, how dare you? Because I'm insane and I know it and I'm offended. Like that's a weird thing, right? It's just not a scenario I think you're gonna encounter. It's like, okay. Uh, and they suggested instead use the, this was an actual thing. Instead say that's bananas because fruit can't get offended, right? Yet, we'll find a way, we will find a way, we'll find a way. And so this just, it's just like, it's one thing after, after another. And it's silly, but it shouldn't be surprising. Because while I'll say this, it's very easy to look at that concept and laugh at it. And usually, whenever the concept of safe spaces is being discussed, it's often like an older generation looking at a younger generation and being like, that's ridiculous, like, come on, just, just toughen up. But very often, the generation that's judging that is the same generation that raised the generation demanding safe spaces. Because like, that generation raised a group of kids who weren't allowed to ever do anything. Like, never got to go and just be. Like how many of you, and I would love a show of hands that's legitimate, like just for one second, get over it if you don't like raising your hand, just for a minute, okay? How many of you grew up in a time where you could be somewhere and your parents didn't know where you were and that was fine? Yeah. Like how many of you did things you shouldn't have done when your parents, right. <laughs> Do you know what would happen to me now if someone knocked on my door and said, do you know where your, your eight-year-old is? And I was like, no. <laughs> like, they're like, I would, like, they would pull me away. You're, you, you're not fit to parent. I'm like, they're probably fine. <laughs> like, I don't. But that's how we were raised. But there was, there was a shift. You have to understand our culture. There was a shift and, and there's a lot of different reasons for it. No reason to get into all of it. But like, all of a sudden parents start going, oh, no, 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 you can't, we're gonna, protect, safety, 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 safety. Everything's about safety. And so you raise a generation that they're not allowed to take risks and they're not allowed to, to do things that, that might, and parents are there just hovering and making sure that everything goes well, everything goes great. And then they're like, oh, that's, that's maybe that develops into an unhealthy need for safety. So we have to understand that as human beings, we all crave safety and security. And so while, while you might be someone who's like thinking about a college campus and college students demanding safety, like before you judge that, do you live in an incredibly safe neighborhood and yet you have a security system? Like, I mean, some, let's, let's be honest. It's so funny, Megan and I have a security system in our home and it just like, it came with the house basically. And it's the nicest place we've ever lived. 
The first apartment we lived in had a meth lab next door. I'm not exaggerating, I'm not making it up. The first apartment we lived in cost us $385 a month. And it's not like it was 1950 when you could buy like soda for a nickel. It wasn't that long ago. So when you're paying $380 a month for an apartment 15 years ago, it's because you're living in a very bad place. We had a neighbor who would get drunk all the time and bang on our door thinking it was his and he had been locked out. This happened all the time. And like be one in the morning and he's banging, I'd be like, hey man, you don't live here, you're one door over. And we had no security system and we're fine. And then we get to a nicer neighborhood where like it's a lot of, like just there's sort of the protection of the community and it's like, well, we better, you know, have a code before we go to sleep. Like it's just, can we admit the fact that maybe as human beings, all of us, no matter the generation, no matter where we're at, we have a deep need for safety and security? Maybe an unhealthy need. My, my pastor in college, his name's Roy, love Roy. He said, I, there's very few things that someone will say and 20 years later you remember it. And one time he said that almost every decision a human being makes is made out of a desire for comfort or security. We crave comfort and security. It's safety, safety, safety. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians, uh, Paul is, is talking about this, this time when, when Jesus will return, and it's often called the day of the Lord. Some of the songs we sang this morning kind of sing about this idea. It's really mysterious in scripture, really interesting to study. And he says this, now concerning how and when this will happen, dear brothers and sisters, we don't really need to write you, for you know quite well that the day of the Lord's return will come unexpectedly, like a thief in the night. When people are saying everything is peaceful and secure, then disaster will fall on them suddenly as, as like a pregnant woman's labor pains begin and there'll be no escape. It's a very comforting uh, thought. But it's interesting that in, in Paul's explanation of, of the day of, of Jesus' return and all this craziness that'll happen and, and in his culture and time, what happened in Jerusalem in, the, in 70 AD, study all that if you want to, really interesting. It all happened really suddenly, but but it's interesting because he's saying it'll be at a time when everyone's saying safety, safety, security. It's all safe, it's all secure, and oh, it's not. So let's, let's go back to the garden. We have a, a need as people for safety, for security. We all tend to live our lives in ways that, that minimize risk and maximize comfort. And God creates a perfect place that isn't safe. At the very least, it's not perfectly safe. God himself did not create a, a snake-proof garden. Maybe there's something God values more than safety and security. What could that be? Maybe it's strength. Joshua chapter one is an interesting conversation between God and, and Joshua. And if you don't know the story, Joshua is the guy who succeeds Moses. Moses was the leader of the people of Israel. Moses has died and now Joshua takes over. He's got big shoes to fill and he's got a big task ahead of him because he has to lead the people of Israel into the promised land. And it's gonna be a battle. It's gonna be a series of battles. And so this is what the Lord says to Joshua, be strong and courageous. For you are the one who will lead these people to possess all the land I swore to their ancestors I would give them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the instructions Moses gave you. Do not deviate from them. 
turning either to the right or to the left. Then you will be successful in everything you do. Study this book of instruction continually. Meditate on it day and night so you will be sure to obey everything written in it. Only then will you prosper and succeed in all you do. This is my command. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Multiple times, God says to Joshua, be strong and courageous. He actually commands him to. It's kind of a tough command, right? Just be strong. Oh, okay. Thanks. I am now, you know? It's not how strength works. Unless there's a strength inside of you that you're not aware of. There's an interesting story. In the book of Judges, there's a man named Gideon. He becomes a, a judge of the nation of Israel. At this time, they don't have a king. And the judges are the ones who lead the people. And they're not someone that, that comes via a family. It's not like you become a judge and now your son will be the judge after you or whatever. No, it's kind of like God picking specific people that, that he wants to use. It says that the angel of the Lord came and sat beneath the great tree at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash of the clan of Abizer. Gideon, son of Joash, was threshing wheat at the bottom of a wine press to hide the grain from the Midianites. At this time, the people of Israel have been attacked by this, this place called Midian. And so Gideon is, is doing this thing in, in a very secret way. He's hiding, he's afraid. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, mighty hero, the Lord is with you. That's an awesome greeting. Like the angel of the Lord, which, which might be, many scholars would say this is Jesus before coming as a man. And he calls him mighty hero. But Gideon doesn't seem to, to get the compliment. Sir Gideon replied, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Where are all the miracles our ancestors told us about? Didn't they say they brought us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to the Midianites. The Lord turned to him and said, go with the strength you have and rescue Israel from the Midianites. I am sending you. Now Gideon goes on to argue with God more, which is a theme in the Bible. So if you ever find yourself arguing with God, you're in great company. That's a good thing. But he says like, I'm not strong, I'm weak. In fact, my family is weak and I'm weak in my family. But he says, go in the strength you have. In other words, your strength is enough for what I'm asking you to do. You're strong enough, you're stronger than you think, you're strong enough when you do it with me, that's for sure. So many times in scripture, we see God telling people that they're stronger than they think they are. That they're capable of more than they believe that they are. So much so that he feels comfortable saying, no, 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 you're gonna do this. You see Moses, are you God, but God, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a good speaker and I don't know what they're gonna say. And he's like, you're, Moses, you're doing it. I'm sending you. God values strength. And I think what maybe the garden reminds us of, the fact that there's a serpent there in the first place, whatever that means, whatever that, that is, is that his idea of perfection does not mean perfectly safe. And very often, our need for comfort and security will come at odds with the things that God might have us to do. What would happen if we valued strength more than we value comfort? How would that change the way we live our lives? How would that change the way we think? How would that change the way that we go about doing things? Like honestly, if we truly valued strength, 
more than safety. Let's, let's look at this in kind of a specific way. Parents, I'm gonna start there with, with parents. I know not all of us are parents, uh, but a lot of us are. And I think that this is something that comes up a lot when it comes to, to how we raise our kids. When it comes to raising our children, do we value safety or strength more? I will tell you, I was a youth pastor for a decade and the normal answer is safety. And the reason I know that is because you, you, know, you watch parents freak out anytime their kids maybe encounter something that's challenging or hard or upsetting. And my wife was a teacher and I know my wife can tell you the number of times a parent was upset that something happened at school. And the, t- and the parents like, I just, I'm, I'm letting it be known. I demand that everything be taken care of and that tomorrow be guaranteed that it's perfect and wonderful and safe. No one uses that language, but that, that's what happens, right? Because we want our kids to be safe. Of course we do. But it, but it goes too far very often. I remember many years ago, uh, it was right when, I don't know if you guys know this, I have a son who plays basketball and he had just started playing basketball. This is a brain joke. And, uh, and there was, this, there was this team from one of the schools and the way it's supposed to work locally is there's this big league and all the schools have teams and it's supposed to be kind of evenly distributed uh, so that it's competitive and no team is just like clearly better than the other so the kids all, and it never works out that way. Because there's cheaters, that's the truth, there's cheaters. And I'm not sure if this is the way it is now, but in 2017, Avery Elementary were a bunch of cheaters, okay? <laughs> and it was just well known. As you saw Avery on your schedule, you're like, well, either you're gonna get Avery's B team, it's like somehow all the kids who weren't very good got on one team, and then somehow all the kids who were great got on one team, right? But this, this actually happened. And I remember talking to a, a, a guy about it, like, hey, how does that team always end up like so good? He's like, oh, well, they don't really do it the way we tell them to. They kind of just all agree to put all the best kids on one team. I was like, oh, okay. And you know, I didn't care, because like, no one's going, man, you should have seen me in second grade. I was so amazing like second grade basketball. But, here, but I remember thinking about it and going, what, a, what an absolute travesty for those kids because they've been put in a situation where they're guaranteed to win. It's not even, they don't even have to worry about it. Like the game's over before it starts. So they never have to experience the pain of defeat. I would watch my son lose games and cry. And then I would say, I'll give you something to cry. I know how to do that, I'm just <laughs> No, like I, I watched him, I, I would watch him lose close games. You know, I, I remember a game where, where he could have hit the shot to win it and he missed it. And I'm really glad he had those experiences. Because yeah, creating a system where you guarantee your child's success, they're gonna enjoy it in the moment. And let's be honest, as a parent, you enjoy it because you feel good when your kid succeeds. But that does not develop strength of character. That's not how you develop strong kids. What if instead of paving the road to their success, what if you taught them how to actually succeed? And one of the challenges, I'll be honest, one of the challenges those of us who have young kids face today is children are just exposed to more than they've ever been exposed to. It is not a safe world for kids and you can't make it perfectly safe. Look, if if God couldn't create a place that was truly free of temptation, there's no serpents in his garden, don't believe for a moment as a parent you can create a home where there's no temptation. In fact, I will say this to some of you who have raised children that have grown 
and maybe your children rebelled. Maybe you, maybe you took your kids to church and you thought you did it the right way and then for some reason they, they went the other way and you're like, what did I do wrong? If God himself could not create a rebellion-proof environment, there's no way you could. So cut yourself some slack because Adam and Eve rebelled against God and they were living in paradise. Parents, I just wanna say this. Your children, they're gonna get exposed to things. In fact, if you have a child that's in middle school, they've already been exposed to more than you think they have. Whatever you think they have, you're wrong. I mean, it's just, and I'm not saying that immediately, you're just, you are. Because the world that we live in, it's not safe. And there's exposure in all kinds of ways and areas. And, and one, some of you are hearing that like freaking out, like I'm gonna go home and snake proof my house, right? <laughs> You're gonna get home, your kids are like, no devices, no television, we've thrown it out. It's just buried in the backyard. And you know, and, and there's, a, there's a part of our human nature that the first time we hear that, oh, our kids might be exposed to stuff, well, then we're gonna get rid of all that. And you know what? I'm not saying it should be a free for all. I'm not saying that, you know, everything should just be wide open, of course not. In fact, Madison, our youth pastor, has great filters if you wanna to talk to him about how to maybe be wise in those ways, but at the same time, just don't believe for a moment that you can create a temptation-proof or an exposure-proof environment. You can't. There's always a snake in the garden. Teach your children to be strong. Teach your children how to engage with those things. And a great way to do that is to never let any conversation be awkward between you and your children. Like that's one, of the, that's one of the hardest things as a parent, right? When your kids say something and you're like, mm-mm, 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 nope, mm-mm. Change the subject. Don't want to pretend like, you, you know what I mean? And so like the first time Liam, my oldest, ever said the word sex, he was in third grade. And I said, do you know what that is? And he went, like shame, he was like, I was like, what is it? He said, it's when a boy and a girl kiss. Part of me was like, I should just let him believe that because that actually might work out for me. Like, yes, babies happen every time someone kisses. Know that, know that. But I said, well, he, he knows the word. Probably means there's some little turd on the bus that's talking to him about it. You know? Sorry. There's always a snake in the garden, there's always a turd on the bus. That's just life, okay? And that turd is someone's child, and I'm sorry. Sorry. That's how we feel as parents, right? Just being genuine. And so I'm like, he's in third grade, he said the word, he's hearing it from somewhere, I'm not saying it. And I was like, no, that's not what sex is. Do you wanna know what it is? And he said, yes, and I told him what it is, and he went, no. <laughs> but that began a series of conversations, and just every once in a while, I kinda try to gauge as a dad, because here's, here's the thing. I, I would rather him come to me than whoever's on the bus. Right? There's a curiosity that are inside of children. And sometimes as parents, let's be honest, sometimes as Christian parents, we squash that curiosity. And it doesn't equip our children for success. So, so if you want to raise strong kids, 
Acknowledge there's a snake in the garden always. There's always temptation. There's always exposure. There's always things out there. And as a parent, teach your children how to think. Not just what to think, how to think. Teach them how to be critical and how to look at things and, and ask the right kinds of questions. Teach them to be strong because you need strong children more than you need safe children. Now, that was just a, a, a thing with parents. Some of us are here like, this doesn't apply to me at all. But look, all of us face temptation. So, so as we wrap up, let's just say this. What, what, what do we do with this? What is this whole strength, safety, no matter what stage of life you're in? I wanna get one phrase for you, one simple phrase. It's this, it's be aware, be alert, right? Be aware and be strong. All of us. This is what God would have us do. The story of the garden teaches us in part that there's always gonna be temptation, that even God's idea of perfection does not include perfect safety. So what do we do in response to that? We live lives where we are alert and we're strong. We're committed to that. Multiple times in scripture, it tells us to be alert, right? Mark chapter 13, Jesus again is talking about this sort of idea of, of the day of the Lord, this kind of day where stuff goes down. He says, however, no one knows the day or hour when these things will happen, not even the angels in heaven or the Son himself, only the Father knows. And since you don't know when that time will come, be on guard, stay alert. First Peter chapter five, verses eight and nine, stay alert, watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Stand firm against him and be strong in your faith. There's that command again, be strong. Be alert and be strong. Now, now, being alert means don't be naive. And you know, it's what we're talking about with parents. Sometimes parents can be intentionally naive to the stuff maybe their kids are, are exposed to, but all of us can be naive. Do you know how many times I've heard someone say regarding maybe what they watch on television, like it doesn't affect me? That's impossible. Everything affects us. Like, so just be be aware, don't be naive, don't, don't convince yourself that things won't have an impact on you, be aware, be alert. It also doesn't mean to be afraid and alarmed, that's different than being alert, right? If someone's alert, they're focused, but they're calm. So we wanna be like that, we wanna be aware. Yeah, we live in a world, we have an enemy. Next week we're gonna talk really specifically about how the enemy kind of works and, and how, how he, he does things, his tactics, his strategies, but we're supposed to be aware, but not alarmed, not afraid, not freaking out. Because our God is stronger. And with him, we're stronger. That's the truth. I, I, it's one of those cheesy things that I heard someone say when I was a teenager, and it just it stuck with me all these years that we're not very strong individually. We're like toothpicks. But with Jesus, we're like toothpicks duct taped to a lead pipe. Okay? <laughs> and in that scenario, you gotta break the lead pipe to break the toothpick. Right, that's who we are. We're connected to the God of the universe, the one that death couldn't defeat. And he loves us and he's with us and he tells us, guys, think about this. If you're a Jesus follower, he tells you to be strong because he believes you are. Because the same spirit that lives inside of you is the spirit that raised him from the dead. So he would look at you and say, hey, don't be afraid, but don't be naive. Be alert and be strong. You are stronger than you know. And he told Joshua, he said, be strong because I'm with you. I'm with you. It's a big promise. Like some of us are sitting here going, I'm actually not that strong. I have areas of weakness. I have temptations that I'm very susceptible to. 
2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul says, three different times I begged the Lord to take it away. Some issue he was struggling with. He called it a thorn in his flesh. And each time he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. Think about that for a second. So Paul goes on to say, now I'm glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weakness and in the insults, the hardships, the persecutions, the troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. You might say to yourself, I'm actually super weak in this area. And God would look at you and go, great, because I'm not. We have to understand this. The Holy Spirit inside of us, guys, that's a real thing. The Holy Spirit is not just some like concept, it's, it's, it's real. And so let's, let's say you struggle with addiction. Your flesh struggles with addiction. The Holy Spirit inside of you does not. Your spirit can overcome your flesh. You know, if, if you're like, I have an anger problem, I really, I have a really short fuse. The Holy Spirit inside of you is patient because he hasn't left you yet. If he wasn't patient, he wouldn't be there anymore, right? The Holy Spirit is patient. Your flesh has a, a short fuse, but not the spirit inside of you. See, when you're weak, he's strong. And as we learn to recognize that, oh, in my weakness, I just lean more into the strength of my God. That's how we get stronger. But we're commanded to be alert and be strong because he's with us. He's with us always, even in the struggles, especially in the struggles. In fact, you know, one of the biggest challenges we have sometimes as Jesus followers is in worship team, you guys can go ahead and make your way out. We're gonna wrap up with a baptism this morning, which is awesome. But as we get all that set up, you know, I think one of the biggest struggles we often have is a failure to understand how we measure God's love for us. You know, a lot of us would say, I know God loves me. God, I believe God loves me. But how do we measure his love? What do we actually use as the, the proof? I heard a pastor talk about this and it blew my mind that we almost always think about God proving his love to us by means of him uh, removing us from difficult situations, right? He proves his love to us by rescuing us from hardship. So we had a situation and we're like, I don't want this to happen. God saved me from this. And he, he did it and whew, we, we, we dodged that bullet. And so we know God loves us because he, he rescued us from hardship. But if Jesus used that filter as the way to understand God's love for him, God didn't love him very much. And not just Jesus, take most of the people in scripture that are like the heroes. They're the favored ones of God. God does not prove his love to them by rescuing them from difficult situations. He proves his love to them by being with them in the difficult situations. In fact, he proves his love to them very often by revealing him to, uh, him to them more fully than he's ever been revealed before in their difficulties. It's when they're in those hardships that they see him like they've never seen him before. That they, they hear his voice more clearly than they've ever heard it before because they need him. Because they need him. So God proves his love to us very often by revealing himself to us, who he really is, what he's really capable of in the hardships, in the weakness. He's, he's with us so we can be strong. So here's the deal as we wrap this up. We don't live in the Garden of Eden. And if there was one serpent in that place, there's probably more where we live. There's no way for us in our lives to snake-proof things. Doesn't work, can't do it. 
There's always a snake in the garden, but that's okay. That's okay because God values strength more than safety. And he doesn't promise us perfectly safe lives with no struggles, no difficulties, but he does promise us a strength greater than our own. Which do we value? Are we gonna be people who value comfort and security and do everything we can to, to make that a guarantee? Or are we gonna be people who value strength? Say, Lord, whatever you have planned for me, whatever I've gotta go through, I'll go through it. Because I wanna see you more. I wanna know you better. And I wanna be the person you've created me to be. So make me strong. Let's value strength more than safety. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this church. Lord, thank you for giving us the strength to overcome every temptation, every struggle, every issue. There's nothing that we can face that you can't overcome. There's nothing we can go through that you cannot empower us, God, by, by the power of your spirit, not our own strength, God, but the power of your spirit. There's nothing that we can't overcome with you. That's why scripture says that we are more than conquerors through you. We are stronger than we think because of you. So Lord, help us believe that. Help us desire that. Lord, help us be people who look to maximize our strength and the strength of our children and the strength of the people around us and our communities more, God, than, than simply maximizing safety. Because safety very often, Lord, it's just, it's a bit of an illusion. God, I pray that you strengthen us. Fill us. Keep us focused on you. Help us listen to you. Help us rely on you. And when we feel weak, Lord, help us lean into you more than ever before. We pray this in your name. Amen.